We've all gone through seasons in our lives where we felt incredibly inadequate, maybe unqualified for what laid before us, and maybe downright insecure. Uh, So I've been preaching now for nearly 25 years. It all began in high school. I would preach high school chapels on a weekly basis in my Christian high school. About 18 years old, I started traveling the country where I would preach at youth rallies and student revivals, and uh, then that turned into, you know, Bible conferences with adults. In fact, by the time I was 20, I had preached in nearly 30 states around the country. And so at 22 years old, uh, I actually took my first lead pastorate down in Southern California. And so it's been about 25 years or so that I've been doing this. And and I've had some people come up to me over the years and say something along the lines of, you know, you kind of seem to know what you're doing for being so young. And I said, well, well, two things. Number one, I I don't really know what I'm doing, one. (laughs) And uh, two, you know, I've been doing this for nearly 25 years now, so uh, hopefully I've I've learned a a thing or two along the way. Uh, I was reading somewhere recently that the average pastor takes a lead position at a church at about the age of 40. And uh, so basically by the time they've had about 25 years of experience, they're getting ready to retire. And so for the last 25 years, I've had the privilege of opening the sacred book and preaching the word of God. But I remember early on in those days, this is a picture uh, about a year and a half after I started pastoring down at a little uh, church down in Southern California. In fact, this is kind of funny. When, uh, when I first started pastoring, I wasn't even married. And so when a guest would come to our church, I'd have to introduce my girlfriend. You know, his pastor and his girlfriend, you know, at the church. Eventually, we did get engaged, uh, got married. And uh, so for 20 years, we've been preaching. And while that was kind of an incredible experience early on, the reality is it came with some incredible challenges. And there was so much sense of insecurity that went in at being such a young pastor uh, for so many years. I, I remember when we first got to the church, a little, little country church. How many of you have been through Boron? Maybe on your way to Barstow or Las Vegas, yeah, there's this little blip on the radar, Boron. Th- that, little, that little desert city is where uh, I had the privilege of pastoring. I think there was one of three churches uh, in that city, and I pastored one of them. And I remember when I got there, uh, it just needed a lot of, a lot of stuff needed to be done. There was remodeling that needed to be done around the buildings, but there was also work that needed to be done spiritually in the community. And uh, Jenny, I don't know if you remember this, but there was like these two classes classrooms where they were just filled. I don't know how this had happened, but somebody had decided they wanted to start a quilting ministry in Boron. And so maybe some of you who quilt, there were all these quilt patches. And I am not joking. There were literally two Sunday school rooms filled. I mean, I'm talking about shelves from all, all the way to the ceiling. And they were filled with these massive garbage bags of these quilt squares and two entire rooms of these things. And I remember thinking we got to this point where we were going to need to use these rooms for Sunday schools as the church was kind of growing. And uh, I remember trying to figure out who these belonged to. And somewhere in the history of this church, it was like a hundred-year-old church, at some point, like 30 years ago, some old lady had donated all of these quilt squares so that one day, you know, the church could start a quilting ministry. She had long passed, you know, passed away, and nobody really knew what to do with these things, but the church felt very strongly that we could not get rid of these quilting squares. I remember making an announcement, hey, if you want quilting squares, come grab some. Nobody grabbed some, and so I remember throwing them away. Man, that turned into like World War III at that little church in the desert. I remember on one occasion, there was this massive dead bush in front of the church. It had died. 
And uh, so I was going to take the initiative to go pull out that dead bush and replace it with some live plants. Seemed like a kind of natural thing to do. I remember I had a couple of families at the church. They came and ripped into me. You know, who, you know, who did you get permission from to pull out this bush? You know, I don't remember voting on this. I was like, I didn't realize we needed voting to pull weeds. You know, it was just kind of like, like, what in the world? And so I remember going through all this, and it was just like crazy. I remember one time I was praying. I said, Lord, I really think it would be awesome just to kind of see you do something big in this little desert city. And I began to pray. I said, Lord, what, what is it that you'd like us to do? And I remember it's like as I was praying, it was like the Holy Spirit was saying, you know what? Why don't you pray? Why don't you ask for, you know, 200 folks, you know, to come to church? Which in a little city of 800 people, <laughs> that's a pretty big deal. You know, 25% of the city coming out to church, you know? And I mean, at the time, we're maybe running 40 or 50 folks. So even, even for us, that would have been massive, you know? And for a community like that, it would been huge. And I started praying, and for two months, I prayed. And, and sure enough, we had a day, and we invited our friends to come out. And I remember going to different homes, inviting people to come to a, a service where I was just going to stand up and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, death, burial, resurrection. Anybody who wants to place their faith in Jesus, come, you know, and we'll show you from the Bible how you can be saved. And I remember that day having well over 200 people from that little city come and, and hear the gospel. And at 23 years, I was so excited, but it was so hard because while it was exciting, there was so much, there was so much difficulty and tension. I remember at one point, we were like, you know, we need to start supporting some missionaries. How many of you believe that the gospel needs to get out around the world, not just in our community? I remember when I stood up and said, hey, we're going to start supporting missionaries financially. I had a family uh, who literally had taken the pictures at our, ver at our wedding. And I remember them standing up and said, if we support missionaries, we're leaving the church. Like, what? This money's for us and our community. And I was just like, what in the world is going on? And it was just so many challenges. Even, you know, I, I was so young, I didn't really know how to handle all this. And we we're doing remodeling. I remember my dad, uh, he drove down uh, from Fresno here to Boron, and, and I was showing him around. I was a little bit discouraged, a little bit overwhelmed. And for those of you who might know my dad, he's, he's a little bit sometimes on the quieter side uh, as a man of few words in a, in a lot of ways. And as we were walking around the property, and I was, I was feeling a little insecure about just pastoring in that city, a little, you know, feeling a sense of maybe not fully qualified to even be doing what I, what I was doing. I remember I was walking around the property and talking a little bit about what the Lord had done. And I remember him saying something. I remember him saying something. Saying, he said, Josh, because you're, you're doing a good job, and I'm proud of you. That was nearly 20 years ago. And those words from my dad meant so much to me in that moment. Because in a moment where I felt supremely unqualified, when I felt like nobody was noticing and nobody was seeing what I was going through and nobody really understood, my dad came along and said, I see, and I'm proud of you. The reason I share that story is because we've all had times in our lives where we felt like life was just against us. We felt like we were totally unqualified for what we were facing in our lives. And maybe we even feel a little bit insecure about it. You ever been there before? You just feel like, I don't know that I have what it takes to do what needs to be done. But way more importantly than my earthly father saying, I'm proud of you. Way more important than what an earthly father would see in you. What's more important than that is what my heavenly father would say. 
and what my heavenly Father sees. And I'll say the same for you. In fact, it kind of leads us to our theme that we're going to unpack a little bit here today, and that is simply this. We're going to take this message and put it into one statement. It would simply be this. What God the Father sees in us is way more important than what anyone else says about us. I want this to sink in because this is going to become the foundation for where we're going as we study through Genesis chapter number 21. What God the Father sees in us and what God the Father sees in you is way more important than what anyone else says about you. So here's the question I want to ask and then we're going to get into our study. What do you see when you look at yourself? What do you see when you look at yourself? And we're going to talk a little bit today about our identity. We're going to talk, some people call it your self-esteem or your self-image or your self-worth. And there are a lot of synonyms to go along with this idea. But from a spiritual, biblical worldview, your identity. I want you to ask yourself this question. What do you see when you look at yourself? So we're going to be in Genesis chapter number 21 in just a moment. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn there. Before we get into our scripture reading, let me give you a little context on what's happening in Genesis chapter number 21. And to do that, we're going to get the context from Genesis chapter number 16. In Genesis 16, God had come to the patriarch Abraham. He, his wife, Sarah, and he comes and says, I'm going to make of you guys a great nation. You're going to have a kid, and that kid is going to become a great nation in the future. The only issue with this is at the time, Sarah, Abraham's wife, was 90 years old. Now, I don't know of many 90-year-olds who are having kids, Not many 90-year-olds who are having babies. But God had come along and said, hey, you're going to be, from you is going to come a great nation, and Sarah, you're going to have a child that is going to be the father of this great nation. Well, Sarah, when she first heard this, literally just began to laugh. She's like, this is ridiculous. Abraham's 100 years old. I'm 90 years old. This is possible. But God said this is so. And so Sarah comes up with this plan. She's 90 years old. She goes to Abraham and says, I know God said this could be a nation. I don't see how this is going to work. I'm a little too old for all of this. And so Sarah says to Abraham, hey, I've got this maid servant. Her name's Hagar. He says, I got an idea, Abram. Why don't you go and have a child with Hagar? And that's how all this can work out. And Abraham's like, all right. <laughs> Sounds good to me. <laughs> So he goes to Hagar, and they have a child, Ishmael. Now, we're going to pick up the story in chapter number 21, and so I want you to see this for yourself, because that's kind of the background, chapter number 16, which leads us to chapter number 21. So if you're visiting with us today, real quick before we get started, we're so glad to have you here today. Uh, In fact, at some point during the service, if you could just maybe jump on your smartphone and go to fresnochurch.com slash connect. There's a place for you to fill out some information. We'd love to get you some more uh, just information about the church, answer any questions you might have. Love to have a little record of your attendance. Uh, For the rest of you, though, I'm going to encourage you to take a moment. Why don't you stand? We're going to read from Genesis chapter number 21. And uh, we're going to just dive in to do a little Bible study here this morning. And uh, really kind of talk about what do, we, what do you see when you look at yourself. Here's what the Bible says in Genesis chapter number 21, verse number 1. So the Lord kept his word 
and did for Sarah exactly what he had promised. How many of you are thankful that God always does what he promises? Amen? That's awesome. If God says it, it happens, and that's what happened. Yes, Sarah was 90 years old, but she had a baby. She became pregnant. She gave birth to a son for Abraham, even in his old age. Remember, Abraham was 100 years old. This happened at just the time God had said it would. And Abraham named their son Isaac. For those of you who have grown up in church world, you're familiar with Abraham and Isaac. Eight days after Isaac was born, Abraham circumcised him as God had commanded. Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born, and Sarah declared, God has brought me laughter. All who hear about this will laugh with me. Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse a baby? Yet I have given Abraham a son in his old age. That's what the Bible says in verse 8. Then when Isaac grew up and was about to be weaned, Abraham prepared a huge feast to celebrate the occasion. But Sarah saw Ishmael. Remember, Ishmael was the son who had been born because Abraham had gone in to Hagar. The son of Abraham and her Egyptian servant Hagar. It said making fun of her son Isaac. And it goes on to say, so she turned to Abraham and demanded, get rid of the slave woman and her son. He, he's not going to share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. I won't have it. Man, how Sarah's changing her tune. <laughs> One moment she's like, hey, this is a great plan because maybe God won't work out. And now she's, just, now, it's, now, now she's going in a totally different direction. It says here, this upset Abraham very much because Ishmael was his son. But God told Abraham, don't be upset over the boy and your servant. Do whatever Sarah tells you to do, for Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. But I will also make a nation of the descendants of Haggard's son because he is your son too. So he says, I'm going to do something special. So Abraham got up early the next morning, prepared some food and a container of water, strapped them to Haggard's shoulders. Notice this. Then he sent her away with their son, and she wandered aimlessly in the wilderness of Beersheba. I want you to get what's going on now. Imagine how this must feel for Hagar. She gets a little, she gets a snack, a little bit of water, and she gets sent out into the desert. Verse 15. When the water was gone, she put the boy in the shade of a bush. Then she went and sat down by herself about a hundred yards away, she said, I don't want to watch the boy die. And she burst into tears. But God heard. He heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven. Hagar, what's wrong? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Go to him and comfort him, for I will make a great nation from his descendants. And God opened Hagar's eyes, and she saw a well full of water. She quickly filled her water container and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy as he grew up in the wilderness. He became a skillful archer, and he settled in the wilderness of Paran. His mother arranged for him to marry a woman from the land of Egypt. I'm going to speak on this subject today, a new year, a new you. A new year. A new year. Let's a new you. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll dive into our Bible study this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that 
we would recognize our worth, our value in the way that you see us, not the way we see ourselves or the world around us projects us to be, but Lord, we would see ourselves through heaven's eyes. Use your word to, to literally change the way we perceive both ourselves, others, and the world around us. I pray that you'd bless us as we spend time in your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen, and you may be seated. So here's Hagar, all right? Abraham and Sarah had essentially just kicked them out of their home. She was just a maid servant. Of course, she doesn't have any money. She doesn't have any resources. And Sarah, literally, she didn't see any value in Hagar. She didn't see any worth in her. She didn't see anything positive in her. So she just says, hey, I want you to get out of her here. And now Hagar's in this position of, wait, I have no food. I have no money. I have no resources. And here she is in the middle of the wilderness, abandoned and alone, But then God comes along and literally changes everything. And so this morning, I want you to notice that the way God sees us should change the way we see ourselves. The way God sees us should change the way we see ourselves. Before we dive any more deeply into the into this uh, study this morning. How many of you have ever been in a situation where uh, someone saw you doing something kind of weird or strange? You ever been in this? It just kind of gets a little awkward. You ever been in this position before? And like, like, without all the context, it's like, okay, this is a little bit weird. So uh, every once in a while, I like to go out and as a gift, I'll go and, uh, you know, buy Jenny an outfit or some clothing or something like that just as a way to say thank you for all that she does. I remember on one particular occasion, I had this in my head that I was going to go and, and buy her a dress. And so I went to the department store and uh, I was trying to go through the rack, try to find something, a dress that I could purchase for her and things. And, and uh, as I was going through, I was realizing, oh man, I, I don't know exactly, you know, what size she is because they have little numbers on the tags and all this. I'm thinking, man, I don't know exactly how to figure this out. And then it hit me. I said, you know what? We're about the same height. She's about the same height as I am. I'm the same height as she is. So, so I took one of the dresses that I thought would be good, and I, I went over to the mirrors. You know, they have those mirrors, and I started holding that dress up. And I'm looking down, and I'm going like this and going like that. I'm looking in the mirror, doing one of these deals, you know, kind of back and forth. I'm literally thinking, I'm just trying to figure out if this will work. And then I look into the reflection of the mirror, and behind me, there's these teenage guys just looking at me like, what in the world's going on here? I said, you guys don't understand, you know. Quickly, man, ran, left the department store. I don't think she ever even got a dress that week. Somebody had seen a situation, made a snap judgment, and before I knew it, they had gotten a distorted idea of the situation that was going on. You ever been in a situation like that where people make a snap judgment and and they don't have all the details to the story and and they they make a judgment based on limited facts or a limited perspective? We've, We've all been there before where people have done that to us, and if we were to be honest, we've probably done that to some other people as well. And and this was the case with Hagar. Sarah didn't see any value in her, didn't see any worth in her, didn't see anything positive in her whatsoever. But I'll say this, God knew details. God saw something in her that maybe Sarah could not see. He had all the fact and he cared. In fact, the Bible says Hagar lifted up her voice, she wept. You can imagine why she's crying. Literally, that was her home. This was her family in a a very real way. Abraham was the father of her son. 
And now be just all, all of a sudden, she's just being betrayed, abandoned, left all alone from these people that she thought would be there for her. I mean, just imagine what that must feel like. She was given a little water, she was given a little food, and now she's just out wandering the wilderness, literally just left to die. Can you imagine how that must feel? Have you ever been in a situation yourself where you felt like those who are closest to you all of a sudden just kind of threw you under the bus? Like one moment it seemed like they cared, and then the next moment it's like, ah, whatever. You ever been there? You ever felt like you'd been abandoned? You ever felt like you'd been betrayed? You ever felt just incredibly lonely in a situation and, and, and you're, you just do what Hagar does? You just begin to lift up your voice and weep. You ever been there? The Bible says, yes, Hagar lifted up her voice, but it, it makes a statement. It says, and God heard now, here's what's interesting. As you read through the Old Testament, whenever the word God is used in the, in, the, in the English language, there are oftentimes many different Hebrew words for God that are actually being written, and they get translated into English as like God. But there are, there are tons of names for God in the original Hebrew language. Uh, we could talk about the, the word for God, Elohim. That was the word that was used in the beginning of Genesis for creator. So Elohim was this creator God. And so when, when the scriptures are trying to speak of his creating power, they use, it's used this term Elohim, Elohim. El Shaddai is another name for God that literally means God Almighty or, or powerful one. The word uh, Jehovah Jireh speaks to this idea that God provides. And so as you read the scriptures, oftentimes when the word God is used, there's a lot of different Hebrew titles that are being used to describe this. Uh, Adonai means master, Yahweh, God is faithful. There are all these words that get used that describe different aspects to who God is. But when we come to Genesis chapter number 21, it's not the word Elohim or El Shaddai or Jehovah Jireh or Adonai or Yahweh that gets used. It's, it's another word for God that is simply this, Elroy. I want you to get the picture of what's going on here. Hagar is abandoned. She's lost. She's alone. No one, no one knows where she is. No one sees what she's going through. It doesn't seem like anybody else notices. And then Elroy shows up. You know what Elroy, you know what that speaks of? It's the God who sees The God who notices. In the divine inspiration of Scripture, God could have used any one of his titles to describe himself in that situation. He could have described himself as almighty. He could have described himself as powerful. But in this situation, he described himself as the one who sees. And I want to say to you today, you might find yourself in a situation and you feel like nobody understands what you're going through and nobody else notices what you're moving through and nobody else sees the hurt that you're experiencing. But I want to say to you, there's a God in heaven, El Roy, he sees he notices. And he's seeing what you're going through today. The reality that leads us to this first thought, and I'll throw it up on the screens, and that is this. 
What God sees when he looks at you is who you really are. What God sees when he looks at you is who you really are. My friend, you are not in reality who your friends and coworkers think you are. It's not the real you. You are not in reality what your past tells you you are. You are not who the social mirror tells you you are. You are more than your, the, the, the amount in your bank account. You are more than the number on a scale. You're more than your IQ. None of those numbers define who you ultimately are in reality. You are not what your problems tell you you are. You are not even who you think that you are. You are more than what you feel like you are. You are, in reality, who El Roy declares you to be. The one who sees all. The one who knows all. The one who understands all. He is the one who gets to define you. He's the one who truly knows you. He gets to be the one who identifies who you are in reality. How many of you have ever, maybe when you were a kid, you went to a carnival or something, or maybe at the fair, and there was one of these booths where you'd go in and there's all these mirrors, you know, and you'd walk around and you'd look at one mirror and it would distort your reflection, you know, and one you'd be looking really, you know, short, like you're all squished together. Another one you go and you look really, really round. Another one, you're like really tall and skinny. And just all these mirrors and all the different mirrors give you a different reflection of who you are. Can I say, in, in much the same way, that's what life is like? You're going to look at the social mirror and it's going to give you one reflection of yourself. And you're going to look at your past and it's going to give you a different reflection of yourself. And you're going to look at your bank account and you're going to look at your health report. And all these different mirrors are going to give you a different reflection as to who you are. And can I say this? All of them are an illusion. All of them are a lie. You are more than those reflections. You are who God declares you to be. And this is what Hagar was understanding. She felt like she was nothing. She felt like she was all alone. And Elroy comes along, the God who sees and declares something powerful over her. He sees potential. You see, Elroy, God, sees us clearly. He sees us so clearly. But what's amazing is even though he sees us with all of our past and all of our problems and all of our brokenness, even though he sees us clearly, he still loves us dearly. I think this might be up on the screens, but if we look to anything smaller than abiding relationship with Jesus for our self-worth, or satisfaction, or her sense of significance, or our sense of security, all these things that identity is bringing us, if we look to any of these things other than Jesus, we will be disappointed every single time. Because while none of these things are intrinsically bad, the social mirror and what our friends think, and you know, different people in our lives that we look to get our identity, or our self-esteem, our self-worth, our self-image from, none of these things are intrinsically bad. They are unreliable of giving us an accurate reflection of who we are in reality. 
They're just incapable of it because they don't know all the details. They have limited perspectives. They have their own filters that they're seeing us through, and it's impossible for them to reflect back to us a perfect reflection of who we are. Only Elroy, the God who sees perfectly and clearly, can give us an accurate reflection as to who we are. Not our spouse. Not our children, not our boss, not even our pastors can give us an accurate reflection as to who we are. Only God can do that. And so we've got to come to a place where we trust that. In verse number 18, God comes in chapter number 21 and declares to Hagar, basically says, your son is going to be a father of nations, making her the mother of a nation. God really saw her true potential. She wasn't going to be left alone to die. She had a purpose. God had a plan for her life, and it was going to be awesome. It was going to be great. She finally came to a place where she was getting her validation from God because who God sees when he looks at us is who we really are. Hagar's identity wasn't wrapped up in what Sarah thought she was or even who Abraham thought she was or how her problems made her feel or how her resources, as limited as they were, made her move through life. No, her identity was wrapped up in who Elroy declared her to be. So as we wrap this up and we take this thought, I want to just get real practical for a minute and talk about how to develop a healthy, proper uh, identity. Let me give you just three things real quick. How to develop a healthy identity. Number one, see where your current identity comes from. What mirror, what mirror do you look to most often to tell you who you are? Your bank statements? When you, when you look at your bank account, is that the thing that makes you feel something the most? Like either down or, or up? positive or negative? What is it that informs your emotional state, informs your sense of worth, your self-esteem? Maybe for others in this room, it's, it's the clothes that you wear and your physical image. If your physique looks a certain way, if you weigh a certain amount, that informs you. If, if, if you have a certain level of beauty, you know, as, as culture would define it, you feel good about yourself. And so it is literally how people see you physically that informs how you feel about yourself. If you, if you feel your self-esteem being what it should. For others of you, it might be your health. For some, it might be how religiously you move through this life. And if you dot your I's and cross your T's and you do all the spiritual religious things just right, that's what makes you feel good about yourself. That's what gives you your sense of self-esteem. That's what gives you your sense of worth. Maybe for some of you, it's, your, it's what your kids do and how they behave, or your grandkids, or your spouse. If, if they respond to you positively, then you're like, I'm doing pretty good, and your self-esteem goes up. And the moment your spouse starts treating you like dirt, it makes you feel like you're a nobody. And it's your spouse that has become the primary reflection of your self-esteem, self-worth, and identity. a lot of things, a lot of mirrors that we look to to get our sense of worth from. So that's the first question. See where your current identity is coming from. Where does it come from? What is the thing that makes you feel the most elated and the most deflated? 
Because in that might be some of where your current identity is coming from. You've got to see it. Okay. Once you've done that, number two, you have to surrender those unreliable sources of identity to God. There comes a point where we have to say, like, Hagar, what Sarah says about me, what Abraham might think about me, or what my resources are telling me I am, are unreliable. They can't give me an accurate picture of who I am, or my worth, or my value. At some point, I either have to choose to allow those things to define me, or I've got to let Elroy, who sees me clearly, who sees me accurately, who knows me for whoever, am I going to let Elroy define me? Surrender the unreliable sources of identity to God. The reason I use the word unreliable is because they're not always bad sources. Your spouse is not bad. Your job is not bad. Your bank accounts aren't bad. If you have a certain level of, of cultural beauty as culture defines it, that's not intrinsically bad. If you have money or the resources to dress nice, none of those things are intrinsically bad, but I will say they are extremely unreliable to prop up your identity. They will let you down. And to the degree that you can feel good in those identities is to the degree that you will feel bad about them at some point in time. It, it's, it's a scale that has to happen. And so if you're finding that you feel good about the way you dress or the way you look, there will come a moment you will feel just as bad about yourself in that area as well. Or if you're finding in your relationship, that's where you get all your elation. That's where you get all your joy. There will come a point where the scales will balance and you will have to feel just as bad as you felt good in that relationship if that thing is an idol. Same with money, same with health. To the degree that it can make you feel amazing is to the degree that it will make you feel miserable. Everything is balanced. And you've got to pay the piper. So how do we do this? It's one thing to say, surrender your unreliable sources of identity to God. That is a whole lot easier for me to stand up here and say than it is for us to go home and do What do we mean? Let's just get, put the cookies on the bottom shelf. How do we do this? How do we actually surrender these unreliable sources of identity to God? I'm going to say this. We have to let go of the focus and thoughts around that identity, the, the, the cognitive focus and thoughts, and then we have to release the emotions of it as well. So this is twofold. When we talk about surrendering something to God, just giving it up, there is a cerebral cognitive element to it that happens in the mind, and there is an emotional element that happens in the spirit. And both of those things have to be given up and released. And so maybe like what we see happen when the psalmist cries out to God, there comes a moment where you have to surrender those unreliable sources of identity, those things that you're using to prop up the way you feel about yourself and the worth that you have in yourself. There's got to come a point where you release, you let go of your focus on that mentally. And you've got to release that emotionally. You say, well, how do you do that? The reality is those sources of identity at times are going to let you down and there's emotion that goes along with that. There is anger, there is hurt, and there is pain, and there is sadness because that 
unreliable identity lets you down. And all of a sudden, there's anger, there's hurt, and there's pain. They get trapped emotionally. And what happens for a lot of Christians is they try to release, they try to surrender the thought process of that thing without letting go of the emotions that surround it. And you've got to release it all. And there might come a time where like the psalmist did, you go to God and you cry out and maybe it even comes across a little angry and maybe you let go of that hurt and maybe you let go of that pain and you release that thing on an emotional level. Why? Because when the emotions are released, then you can release the thought pattern surrounding it. This is what it's talking about when you cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. This is not just like, oh, it's a happy little saying, cast your care. No, it means casting those thoughts and releasing those emotions, letting them go on a, on a mental level and an emotional level. Release, cast, give it up, and then go, don't go back to it. Cast off those thoughts, those unreliable sources of identity. Cast off the emotions that surround it, the hurt, the pain, the anger, and let that go. Surrender those unreliable sources of identity to God. Number three, solidify your real identity in God's word. Once you've fully surrendered it cognitively, mentally, and emotionally, you've let it go, solidify your real identity in God's word. What is it that God says that you truly are? And let the truth of Elroy's declaration be reinforced in your mind, your will, and your emotions day after day after day. I love where it says in verse number 19, and God opened her eyes. You see, we all have come to a place in our lives where we felt like we were trapped, where we felt like there was nothing we could do, that nobody was noticing where we were at, and yet God sees. And the Bible says after this process, God opened her eyes. And it's interesting that the moment she opened her eyes, she was able to see this well, this resource of grace that she couldn't see before. Because her mind was clouded by her problems. Her mind was clouded by what these people had done to her. But the moment she gets a glimpse of herself through God's perspective, God opens her eyes and she can see this grace that God had made available to her. And it's the same way for you. When you start seeing things as God sees them, you start seeing yourself as God sees you, all of a sudden, you'll start seeing God's conduits of grace around you like you never saw before. Why? Because when we finally see ourselves as clearly as God sees us, we're able to see the world around us much more clearly. So there's this story, ancient story that was told many, many years ago about a, a, a young Asian boy who had went to his father and asked, he said, Father, he said, what's the value of one's life? Like, what's, what's, it, what's it actually worth? And rather than answering the question, the father went into a closet. He, he grabbed out an old box and, and opened the lid and, and pulled out an incredibly unique-looking stone. He looked at his son and he handed this stone to his son and said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to the market and I want you to go try to sell it. And if anybody asks the price, I don't want you to say a word. I just want you to hold up two fingers. 
So that's what the boy did. He went, went, to, went to a market, and, and there was a woman who wanted to buy it. And, and so she said, I, I'd love to buy, buy that stone for my, for my garden. How much is it? And the boy simply raised up two fingers. And, and the woman said, $2? That's awesome. I'll take it. Not knowing what to do, the boy ran home back to his dad and said, Dad, there's this woman at the market, and, and, and uh, she wants to buy the stone for $2. The father said, no. Son, I... I want you to take that same stone, but this time, I want you to take it to a museum, and if anyone wants to buy it, just simply do the same thing. Just simply raise up two fingers, but don't say anything. So the boy went to the museum, and, and a man at the museum asked how much did he, he want for this exquisitely beautiful stone. The museum uh, curator had never seen something quite like it before, and the boy, doing what his dad had told him, simply raised up two fingers, but didn't say a word. And the man at the museum said, $200? I'll take it. <laughs> Once again, the boy was kind of shocked. $200 for a rock. This is incredible. But he, he ran home to his dad and said, Dad, somebody wants to pay $200 for, for this precious stone. And the dad said once more, he said, son, here's what I want you to do. He said, now I want you to take the same stone and I want you to take it to, the, to a precious stone jeweler. So go to the owner and offer to sell it to him. The boy did. He went down to that precious stone jeweler and he showed the owner this beautiful stone. The owner looked at it and said, where did you find this? So this is one of the most rare stones on the planet. He says, I got, I got to have this. How much? The boy did what his dad had told him to do. He said he raised up two fingers. And the precious stone jeweler says, $200,000, I'll take it. The boy ran home and was like, Dad, you'll never, you'll never believe what happened. That man just offered $200,000 for the stone. The father looked at the son and said, Son, do you now understand the value of your life? I said, what do you mean? He said, it doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter the color of your skin or how much money you were born into. What matters is who you put around yourself and who you listen to when it comes to determining your value. There's a lot of people in our world and maybe even some people in this room and you have lived your entire life thinking you were a $2 stone. You've surrounded yourselves with people who don't see your value but the reality is this. Every one of you have incredible worth to Elroy. to the God who truly sees you, who truly knows you and knows who you are in Christ. So I end it with this. What God the Father sees in us is way more important than what anyone else says about us. So when you look at yourself, what do you see? What do you see? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I ask and I pray that as we enter into a brand new year,
that we wouldn't just take our old selves into a new year, but Lord, we would allow El Roy, the God who sees, to declare and define who we truly are. Rather than looking at all the unreliable reflections that culture throws up for us to see ourselves in, may we look to you and see ourselves as you see us in Christ perfect and holy and blameless, not because of our own works of righteousness, but because of what Christ has done on our behalf. We are joint heirs with the Son, and our identity, Lord, the identity we have in you is our inheritance. I pray that we would just not know this cognitively, but that we would, that we would surrender those unreliable sources of identity. We release them minds and in our emotions so that we can solidify your identity in in their place and allow your word to declare who we truly are. If there is someone here today who does not know Christ as their Savior and they've never experienced the new life, the new identity that's made possible through the cross of Jesus Christ, I pray that today would be the day of their salvation, the day when your spirit makes them brand new pray that they seek out a pastor, they'd reach out online so we could connect with them on what it means to have new life in Christ. I pray that you'd bless as we continue to worship here today. In Jesus' name.